David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, we are very excited at RightSource to be partnering with Quantiverse. Um, you're obviously the founder and the CEO. Also, I note, um, you know, you've served our country very well, won, won several awards uh, for, uh, at the um, Persian Gulf, the Distinguished Flying Cross. So, you know, obviously you've heard this from so many people, but we really do appreciate your service and what you've done for the country. So I wanted to say that up front. Um, and I also wanted to get your take on how you arrived in this world, in this, in this AML world, because your background, uh, you created this company in 2014. So you got a lot of uh, um, you got expertise in, in tech and that sort of space. I come from a different place, right? I cover the legal side, the compliance side. And then when your type gets into our world, we're always interested in why you thought the AML world made sense for your company. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, sure. So first, um, thanks for, you know, saying that you're glad as AML RightSource to have Quantiverse as part of the firm because we're thrilled at Quantiverse to be, uh, you know, part of AML RightSource. We found it to be a great strategic fit. Uh, when AML approached us, we found it to be a great cultural fit. Uh, we think that um, we can add a ton of value to AML Right Sources business, and we think that being with AML Right Sources is going to give us the, the breadth that we never had as a technology startup. So we're just thrilled to be to, yeah. to be part of the organization. So thanks for recognizing that, and also thanks for recognizing uh, the service uh, that I had. I always say I got way more out of that experience than I gave. It was just a fantastic experience to be part of the Navy and, and fly uh, for the Navy. So thank you for that as well, but it was really great. And it does sort of tie to what you asked about is how does that lead to, to AML? You know, you take an oath when you join the military to, to defend the country against all uh, enemies. And, you know, even though I'm out of uniform, I still believe that. And one of our biggest enemies are criminals, global transnational criminals and the impact that they have on societies, not just the U.S. society, obviously, but globally and all the people in the world and, and just enabling or allowing these people to get away with the crimes that they get away with and make the money that they make by uh, engaging these crimes uh, is something that uh, I found in my business career as I was, as I learned more about it was something that I wanted to, to uh, help, help uh, try to solve the problem. So, so let us understand a couple things. Um, you've, your, your company, your product deals with artificial intelligence, machine learning, data analytics, all terms that we've heard at conferences in the past five or six years, the AML yeah. conferences. I have to say, in some cases, we walk out of these sessions and it's not just myself. We said, I still don't get it. I, not that I don't, I don't right. get the value proposition. What do we mean? I mean, we understand the definitions, right, of artificial intelligence, but what do we mean? And maybe a good, good way to explain it is through examples, because as you folks have said, and what you your product does very well is obviously reduce what they say is the noise, you know, the false positives, so that you can be better, more efficient. So talk, talk yeah. a bit about that and how that's used. Sure. Yeah, sure. Not a problem. So, um, you know, artificial intelligence is an umbrella term. And it covers many sort of capabilities and technologies uh, underneath that umbrella. You know, some of which that you access on your mobile phone um, right. and that are built in. 
And so the definition of what artificial intelligence, frankly, has moved a little bit in the last five or the last 10 years, something 10 years ago um, that was very esoteric, that is run of the mill today, you know, people would call it artificial intelligence and some people would say, no, that's just advancements in computer science. So it's a little bit of a changing definition, but serving up ads to you on your phone 10 years ago was unthought of and would have thought of been thought of as artificial intelligence. Now it's just sort of code um, and, and capabilities. And so, so it really has to be viewed as that umbrella term that I believe evolves in the definition. Now relative to, to uh, anti-money laundering, and financial crimes, the, the piece underneath that umbrella of artificial intelligence where we really focused our energies is in the machine learning mm -hmm. capabilities. And what that means is coding the machine to be able to identify things that it had not, pre it wouldn't previously identify with just simple rules-based. You know, rules-based technology says, if this rule is violated, if, that, if this happens, then this happens. And, and that could be a hundred times over and over. That rule, if it's violated, is going to produce an alert. And if it's not violated, it won't produce an alert. So it just simply follows what I call dumb computer code. And what machine learning can do is find things and identify things that it has not seen before, anomalies that it has not seen before. And then just, you know, it's not, it's not Skynet, it's not intelligent from the way that says, oh, that's a crime. All it is, it says, this hasn't been seen before. Now let me go through the investigation process and find out, identify, score it about the risk of a financial crime being uh, uh, executed. So an example of that. Um, we in the past found money flowing between uh, computer technology, computer firm, mm -hmm. and a casino. Not a violation of a rule. Casinos buy tons of computer hardware and software. Right. So nothing was ab uh, uh, abnormal about it. The, the uh, volumes, the amount of money being sent, the velocity of that money, the values of that money, all sort of fit within the rule and made perfect sense. But what a machine learning capability found that the rules didn't find was the money was flowing backwards. Mm. Instead of the the casino buying computer software and hardware the computer company was buying things sending money to the casino mm. and it had never seen that before it had never seen the flow of funds between those two lines of business the software had those lines of business the nasus codes for those lines of business identified it always seemed it hundreds of thousands of times flowing in one direction and this time it saw it flowing in another direction alerted something that said something is not normal here. And then when he dug into it, it found out it, it identified the owner of that computer software company as someone that had been accused of, of, uh, of embezzlement. And so now this thing that would have gone on right. and allowed this owner of this computer software company to get money out of his company, embezzle money and move it to a casino and launder it through a casino, was able to be identified instead. So that's just an example of a artificially intelligent technology seeing something that had never been seen before and raising an alert to it that a human can then go and say, yeah, something's amiss here. This isn't right. So that gets me to thinking, not that example, because I think that example is pretty clear that that's an abnormality. But in, in your um, 
the, the way this is set up, if something comes up that you've not seen before, but then the uh, interaction from the staff is they, they contact the customer or, or they do some additional due diligence, they find out, oh, now we know why that occurred. So that actually now there's a reason. So it's sort of an update. So if that were to happen, I assume then the, uh, uh, the machine would be sort of adjusted to say, yeah, this is sort of a, it's unusual, but there are explanations for it. So is that something yeah. that also would happen? Yeah, so there's two answers to that. One is this could be a one and forever anomaly, a one and forever instance case right. that was perfectly legitimate and you could clear it and not change that as an anomaly, not use that as training data that is going to make the computer not identify that going forward. So if it's not used as that training data, then if somebody else does it in the future and that is a bad guy, then it would alert against it again, because again, it hasn't seen it enough. So these technologies require tons of training data, right? petabytes and petabytes of training data, data to find out what's normal. These lines of business operating together, the flow of funds going this way, the amounts of money, the, vol the uh, volume of the transactions, all of that training data is required so that the machine understands what's normal, comes to a conclusion on itself of what's normal what's, and what's not normal. Humans can interfere or, or interact in that process and change what the machine has learned by itself. And that's what you're referring to, is if, if it oh, sees in fact that this is a normal transaction, even though the machine had never seen it before, give feedback to the training data that says this is normal and it shouldn't alert against this uh, going forward in the future. You know, in the, in the pre-tech days, one of the first uh, examples they used about um, money laundering or, or knowing your customer was the proverbial pizza place that was pouring in a lot of money on weekends, but right. no one ever went and the pizza was terrible, right? So, right. You, you right. Sort of, so right. even though cash intensive businesses are both high risk, but there are explanations. There, there's seasonal, there's weekend, there's all sorts of rationales. But in those days, they would say, and maybe to some degree it might still happen, but it's pretty rare. Uh, the institutional staff would do a drive-by basically because they had some alert and the alert was probably then manual that these monies are coming in, but there's no indication that it's, it's a successful enterprise. So that's, it seems to me that that example now is much more able to be handled by machine learning uh, than, right. than those days. And so that, that, that would be something which would, again, trigger an alert or at least trigger a follow-up based on the system that you've created with your clients that we used That's to right. rely on sort of intuition 30 years ago, right? That's right. And so think about that example for a second in the example that I gave you. Uh, the, the example of the casino and the, the computer manufacturer and the example of the pizza company, we view those facts as what we call observables. That's one little fact in an entirety of, of, a, of a whole fact pattern. And this is also the advantage of a machine is now instead of, okay, there's one fact of, there's a, a rule that's been violated, an alert has been created, a person picks that up and says, I got to drive by that pizza shop and make a determination of somebody, if people are going into the volume that they're transacting at. And that's another observable, seeing that kind of volume of traffic into it. These are patterns that are hundreds of observables. These, these crimes, this, this movement of this money involves the people themselves, 
who they're connected to, not just the money and the volumes itself and the flows of it, but the people involved in it. Um, and whether those businesses or those individuals, it makes sense for those folks to be transacted. There are hundreds of these observables that again, a machine is very well capable of, qualified and capable to, to analyze all those observables in conjunction with each other. And a human, think about the time to examine, if there's one observable to go to a pizza shop, to look about, that's one. Right. And now you want to look at a hundred of them. The complexity of that investigation, the time of that investigation can really get burdensome. And, and you know, we know in this, this environment, in this industry, this ecosystem, this community, we ask people to do a lot. And we right. ask people to do a lot in a short period of time. And that's where a computer, computer can really help us by looking at all those observables and then presenting the human with a fact, a pattern of facts for them to be able to make decisions. How hard is it to train the clients that uh, purchase AI or machine learning, not just your product, but anybody's product? Because obviously the key, as you just mentioned, is obviously to train them. But part of it also is their input to you the, these are our risk. This is our risk assessment. So, as a, a community bank in you know somewhere in Iowa is not going to have the same risks potentially as something totally. down in Wall Street, right? So uh, that that's part of it. So it's sort of a it's two way training in a way. Maybe training is the wrong word, but the client has to tell you here's what we're here's our resource limits, but also. Yeah. Here's sort of what we anticipate given the types of products that we offer. It may be very minor, checking accounts, savings accounts, maybe a private wealth thing, but it's only people within our community versus a, obviously a multinational, a vastly different. So uh, when you're going in to train them on your systems, I assume your systems, oh, I think you already said this, are adjustable. And uh, so how, how challenging is the training component of understanding yeah. to get the most value they can out of what you're, you're offering the client? Yeah, great question. And the, the short answer is it's not hard at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, a couple things. One is the software, the capability will work out of the box without any of that training. It will, it will identify things that look uh, uh, risky right. and it will run an investigation that looks like a false positive and, it, and give that feedback to the, to the individual. But it gets much better when we go through and do two things. One is a very simple configuration process. And that, that is um, just what you said. I'm in Iowa. I see transactions within the state of Iowa. They're, we know the customers. They're, they're not risky at all. We, we don't view that as risky. We view a transaction coming from China as all of a sudden it's very risky. That's a 10 out of 10 for us. So we can code a a transaction, we can tell the system that a transaction from China is a very risky jurisdiction, that's a 10. That's a configuration process. It's not customization of the software or anything like that. It's just each bank's own definition of what is risky on that scale. And then, so once we get that configuration, we get it installed, we get it running, and then we go through a calibration process during the implementation that is, um, takes a little bit more time but that's that feedback process that's not just about the risk scores of a jurisdiction, but the feedback process to say, okay, you identified this computer manufacturer and this casino as risky. We know that customer. 
we're going to calibrate the system so it doesn't alert on those two parties doing that transaction in the future. That's a calibration process. That's a feedback process to the system to calibrate it for the specific products, the specific customers, all those things that are unique to every institution. So you also have to stay current, obviously, right, with changes in laws and regulations. The one thing that um, jumps out at me, and I, I know you're aware of this, but under the most recent AML reform law that was signed in January or passed in January, there's a section in there requiring FinCEN and the Treasury Department with their partners in law enforcement to create a list of priorities. And they've already done that, right? So there's no reg yet. So they're still waiting on the regulation. And they do say that when the regulation is finalized, it's going to uh, account for different risks at different institutions. So to, back to our example, Iowa is not going to have the same uh, potential priority list that they have to focus on as, again, a bank in Wall Street or, or, or in Miami. And the, the priorities weren't a surprise to any of us that follow AML. It was human trafficking. It was, uh, you know, cyber issues. They did have proliferation finance, which I think is not going to be something basically a bank in the heartland is going to, not they won't care right. about it, but I don't think they're going to see transactional stuff. So when you get something right. like that, just high level, how does your staff, and obviously now we'll support you on this, how, how will you... Um, sort of uh, implement those new changes in terms of your product helping uh, the clients you know, better deal with what the regulators expect from these new priorities. So again, I, I know you do this on a regular basis anyway. If guidance documents come out, statements come out internationally, if FATF sort of focuses on something. But on the priorities, that's, that's going to be real and tangible. We'll see that before the end of the year. Not specifically how do you do it, but just give us give us a sense of how that would work. Yeah, so first off, I'd agree, we would agree with you, there's nothing on that list that we saw that was a surprise. I mean, it was it was things that we've heard coming from the regulators, it's things that we've discussed with our clients, it's things that we've deployed with our customers. Um, so there is nothing on that that made us step back and say, oh, oh goodness, how are we gonna handle that one? None of that. Um, but just generally, when new things come up, if something new were to come up, um, we have financial crime experts that uh, are part of uh, Quantiverse, and we would uh, sit down with them and ask them if they were a BSA officer, what would they put in place? How would they manage in the old days to find, identify the rule that they would write to investigate it? And then we would do the same thing with that particular piece that we did with the system to say, okay, now that we know the best practice in this, how do we code the system so that it can do 70% of the work for the human? How, what information do we need to go grab for the human? What, is the, what are the codependency on those observables right. that I mentioned earlier, those 100 observables that might indicate this uh, activity is going on that the, the regulators have just identified? And so we would go through that process, uh, write the code for it, test it, QA it, uh, roll it out to our customer base, and, and they have that in a matter of months, weeks, instead of years um, with, with uh, older technology. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you and I talked offline about this uh, concept. The concept is, and you've alluded to it already, that is 
obviously this is a technology response to financial crime prevention. And so it does a lot of things. Uh, ho hopefully, as, as you said, reduces the noise, makes you more efficient, makes your reporting more targeted. When you talk to uh, our partners in law enforcement, they s support the use of efficiencies and certainly the banking agencies have been very uh, supportive of uh, innovation, you know, trying to make uh, all of us better at what we do. The law enforcement partners also will say, and some of this could be self-serving because they're coming from law enforcement, but I, I think it's a fair point that you still need some human intelligence. You need some expertise from people either that are former law enforcement or were from advisory firm, you know, whatever the background is that's relevant there. So how do you, um, when you're talking to a client, how do you navigate both, hey, this is what we'll do to make you more efficient, but you also need to do certain things or continue to do certain things so that together that's, that's a recipe for success. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. We couldn't agree more that the human part of this process is critical. The machine is not to the point that it could perfectly identify uh, potential financial crimes, uh, perfectly investigate those, and perfectly report those to the government. That's just not the way uh, the, the technology works. Could it get there someday? Maybe, but I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. So that the human interaction with this is really, really critical. So what do they need to do? Um, they need to change their, the, the FIs. They need to change their behavior a little bit. They need to, after they validate the machine works for what it does, trust that, to, that it's going to deliver you information that your investigators need. And then you, you need to make sure that your human investigators are really up to date on what financial, how uh, criminals are moving money around the globe. They need to be able to, to read the information, read the reports, analyze those reports that we're giving to them and make sure that they're making the decision, the correct decision based on that information. The reports that we provide them give them a recommendation. Yes, this is risky and it should be reported. No, this is not risky and you can shut this down as a false positive, but they really need to review those and make sure that they're applying critical thinking, knowledge of their industry, uh, the industry professionals, Turn, make sure that your investigators are as professional, as knowledgeable as possible, um, apply their insights into the risk um, uh, tolerance and the risks of their own organization and apply that in that investigation and the conclusion of, of that uh, um, order. I got two, two more for you. One is the, um, uh, the Quantiverse strategy is to deal with a whole host of financial crime uh, issues, you know, uh, st statutory, regulatorily, whether it's tax evasion, corruption, those issues. As you said up front, when you swore an oath to the country, it's to protect the country against um, all those that uh, wish us ill, foreign and domestic. We're, we're in a sad situation of domestic terrorism. It's been going on for several years, not just January 6th, and we recently commemorated 20 years since 9-11. The issues with both 9-11 and trying to understand terrorism in general is how do you look for terrorist financing? A lot of my colleagues say it's really hard because terrorist financing 
are typically low dollar amounts. There's not a lot you can do. Domestic terrorism must be equally opaque in some ca cases. Uh, obviously, without giving away secret sauce, just from your experience, what, what are you seeing now that could be potential indicators of either foreign terrorism or domestic terrorism from, from a financial standpoint? Uh, because again, most of our colleagues that you know that I know will say, unless we get intelligence from the government, we really don't know what to look for. But I have to think there's maybe a few examples that could be um, not an indicator of clear terrorist activity, but it does demand a follow-up, if that makes any sense. Yeah, sure it does. So um, that's exactly right. These are really small dollar amounts, and especially the foreign terrorism and what they're doing to fund lifestyle of that terrorist. So there's not a lot of demands on that. The training isn't that expensive. They don't need that much cash to, to execute those acts of, of violence. So again, this is a great way a machine is able to do more because you know there's no downtime. They don't take a day off for a holiday. There's no uh, religious vacations. It's 24-7. The processing power is somewhat infinite. You know, so there is there is a tremendous ability for a machine to look at below the line transactions that we would never look at and never examine to find that money moving across that certain border between those two people right. uh, through this or certain organization that might indicate um, some terrorist uh, uh, terrorism is going on. So on the foreign side, it's it's the, the patterns are known. It's right. just being able to look at all the transactions, the, the voluminous set of transactions to find those which machine can do. On the domestic side, in my lifetime, the, the biggest act of domestic terrorism that I can certainly remember, I may be wrong about this, was Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City. Right, and, right. You know, right. it was just a humongous right. act of domestic terrorism 30 years ago or so, something like that. Yeah. But if you look at Timothy McVeigh's transactions, there was a pattern there. And that pattern could be identified with who that person was and what it is that they were doing. So it's the same. It's what are they doing? What's the activities that they're engaged in? Who are they? And is there anything in their, their past that might indicate that in fact, this person is presenting uh, a risk? Yeah, that makes sense. The only thing I've heard thus far about sort of recent acts is several of these organizations that were involved in January 6th had created GoFundMe pages before January 6th. So they sort of pretended to be charities when they were looking for funding to travel to right. DC. So, but yeah, other than that, you really would have to have uh, intelligence from law enforcement. In fact, um, well, I was at the American Bankers Association a few months, well, I've, uh, at 9-11, but a few months after I testified, and my testimony in February 2002 still holds today. We said we actually, we can do more if we get better data and better intelligence from our law enforcement right. partners. And that's 20 years later is obviously still relevant. So. Um, right, absolutely. Relevant.